We've been moving through the Exodus, the series of four anti-plagues, four significant events that God brings to the children of Israel in the beginnings of their desert wandering. This morning we're coming to that fourth one, and it is found in Exodus chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 16. Our complementary passage is John's Revelation, chapter 19, we'll be reading verses 11 through 16. So if you would open your Bibles to John's Revelation, in honor of God's word, please stand. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, hear God's word. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord. Of Lords. As far in the reading of God's Word, please turn to Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8 and continuing in the reading of God's Word. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, And Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people, with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we have read, we come to hear the preaching of your word. We pray that you would speak, that your servants would listen. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So... Those of you who have been through high school and maybe even college may recognize Dante's Inferno. 
Dante wrote around the year 1300. He was an Italian. And everybody is familiar with the Inferno. You're maybe not as familiar with the Purgatory or the Paradiso. It was called a Divine Comedy. There are three books, uh, the Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. And it is Dante teaching us about ourselves. We read it in high school, maybe as a cool story. We read it in college, maybe as a cool story. But we don't engage it the way Dante wrote it. What his intent was, was for us to use the inferno to diagnose ourselves. And so as he descends through the various layers of hell, until he gets right down there to the very essence of evil, and that is betrayal. Uh, and so you've got Satan, the first betrayer, you've got Judas, and then you've got one of the popes uh, that, that Satan is gnawing on. Uh, those who would betray what is good is right there down at the very beginning, or very, very center of hell. But Dante begins his journey. Before he descends into the inferno, there's kind of a realm around the lip of the inferno where people are forced to just go after one banner, after another banner. They are walking on worms. They're constantly having their faces stung by bees. These are people, and and my, my favorite author on the inferno is Rod Dreher. Uh, highly recommend his book, How Dante Can Save Your Life. Uh, excellent, excellent book. It'll really help you see the Inferno or the Divine Comedy uh, in, a, in a very fresh way. Very, very excellent book. But Rod Dreher describes this group of people that are wandering around for eternity, chasing after one banner, then chasing after another banner, as people who are not holy enough for heaven, but they're way too boring for hell. And that's a lot of us. (laughs) That's a lot of our society. We'll come back to that here in a moment. But as we look around in our culture today, and maybe even as we look around in our own hearts, How many do we see, or maybe how many of us actually struggle with, I've got this passion today, I'm going to find my meaning over here, this over here is what I'm after today, this over here, no, that over there. And and just this wandering, and that's, that's one of the things with the Divine Comedy, by the way, is if you look at all of the punishments that are given in the Inferno, they all are simply the intensification of the life the person lived. The the very thing that defined this person in life now is completely intensified. Remove any grace or mercy from it at all, and that's what they get for eternity. That which they chose. Beloved, our world today, our culture in Northern Virginia, our own patterns of life, are so often spent lurching 
from one thing to another, seeking after meaning, seeking after value, finding it nowhere, and yet continuing to lurch in another direction. Now the event that's before us this morning, as I mentioned, there are four sort of anti-plagues. The, the mighty wonders that God did upon Pharaoh in Egypt, revealing his character, revealing his power and who he is and his dominion over the gods of Egypt, are followed up immediately after the Exodus with these four demonstrations to the people of Israel. And it's interesting, these demonstrations take place in the context often of the people's own treasonous behavior. First, we've got, they come to the spring that the water is bitter. And Moses is told to throw a log into the water and the water becomes sweet. Well, the next time that we encounter the children of Israel, they're grumbling about food. And you remember that ridiculous claim that they said. Uh, The text tells us they are six weeks out of Egypt, six weeks out of slavery, six weeks ago, Pharaoh, his official policy was that any male son should be drowned in the Nile River. This was six weeks ago. And yet we find them going, oh, it was so much better back in Egypt. We would sit by these pots full of meat. We had meat, all that we wanted. We had bread. Egypt was such a great place for us. Six weeks after their hellish existence, after their slavery and oppression, they're concerned about food, and so they paint this completely ridiculous narrative of how good Egypt was for them. And God in his mercy doesn't strike them down, He doesn't cause the earth to open up and swallow them alive. He says, I'm going to give you manna. I'm going to give you bread from heaven. And that bread is going to rain down, and it's going to be itself a foretaste of the promised land. You remember the promised land. What is the promise of the promised land? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And the taste of manna, we are told in the passage, tastes like cakes baked in honey. And so for all of their time going into the promised land, they're getting, as it were, the Lord's Supper. A taste, a promise of what is awaiting them. God responds to their grumbling with this amazing providence and mercy. But they don't stop there, do they? The very next passage, they actually are contemplating treason. The passage at the beginning of chapter 17 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Moses stands before God and says, they're about to kill me. They're about to attack me physically. This is not just grumbling. This is now treasonous behavior. And again, God miraculously and beautifully supplies water there from the rock of Horeb. He tells Moses, strike the rock, and fresh water, good water, will come gushing out. And so to these rebellious, stubborn Israelites, 
He provides tokens of mercy and grace. Well, now here we are. We're in the exact same place. If you'll notice, the beginning of chapter 17 opens with a geographic placement. They are at Rephidim. Verse 7 reiterates that. We are still here at Rephidim. And the the picture, so, so just real quickly, what I'm going to do, what I want to do this morning is look at this passage in two ways. The first is the event itself, the, this event that's laid for us here in the text. And then secondly, we're going to step back and look at the grand tapestry. Why is this event here? What is God teaching us about himself, about salvation, about the role of the church, about you in this particular narrative? So the event itself, they're still there at Rephidim. And you've got these, these, these people, many of you know that uh, I grew up in Palestine. My father was a medical missionary to uh, the Arabic community there. And one of the communities that we were very much a part of our lives, we were a part of their lives, are the Bedouin. And now this was back in the 60s and 70s when the Bedouin still could kind of be the Bedouin, uh, meaning they they lived in tents. They were nomadic. They followed uh, the, the watering hole. They followed the grass, the grazing. They moved around the desert. They are absolutely vicious people. Uh, every man's hand is against them, and they are against every man. Uh, nowadays, because of geopolitical stuff, the Bedouin have been forced to kind of settle down. But still, you ask an Egyptian about a Bedouin, and the Egyptians are terrified of them. Uh, the Bedouin are the one that, yeah, they may be all stuck in one town, or they may be you know, not allowed to be nomadic anymore, but there's a lot of ISIS uh, kind of stuff. There's a, there's a lot of bad stuff that the Bedouin do because their entire mindset has always been we are against everybody and everybody is against us. And so they're, they're a vicious, vicious people. And that's kind of what the Amalekites are doing. We're in the same desert here. I'm not saying that they're the same people, but, but we're certainly in the same desert. We're in the Negev, in the, in the Sinaitic Desert. And Deuteronomy chapter 17, I believe it is. Uh, sorry, I wrote that down. 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and following, uh, tells us that as the children of Israel are moving through Rephidim, moving through the wilderness, that there are stragglers. There are people who are sick. There are people who are old, who can't keep up. And so this, this massive group of people in the, in the rear of the caravan are the, the weak, the helpless. And those are the ones that the Amalekites set upon. So this is a little scary. This is very much a threat to the very existence of the people of God out in the wilderness. Now again, remember... How well armed are the children of Israel in the land of Egypt? How many arrows and bows and spears and chariots and swords do you think Pharaoh allowed the children of Israel to possess? I'm pretty sure there was no Second Amendment in ancient Egypt, and I'm pretty sure sword control 
was a big deal. I'm pretty sure these people did not just have all the weapons at their disposal. So now here they are six weeks into this wilderness, and a bunch of wild men from the wilderness sat upon them. They're doomed. They are in trouble. I want you to also notice, after this great deliverance, chapter 15, is, is that song of triumph, that beautiful hymn that, that ends up permeating the rest of Scripture. The song of Moses and of the Lamb. That beautiful hymn of God's triumph is followed by hammer blow after hammer blow. The water is brackish. I got no food. I don't have any water at all. The Amalekites are slaughtering our elderly, and our weak. It's just hammer blow after hammer blow against the people. And it's God's powerful and miraculous provision that is highlighted. Now later, a couple of years later, we're going to circle back around to these same events. A couple of years later, we come back and we discover that the children of Israel are still grumbling, they're still murmuring, They're still complaining, and this time, God is saying, I'm done. And he's bringing his punishment upon the children. But not here. Not here. At the start of their journey, God is showing his care and his protecting hand. Now, something else you might have noticed in this passage is a name that pops up. It pops up for the first time in your Bibles. And it's interesting that this name has absolutely no introduction. Joshua. Who's Joshua? Why? We're we're just reading his name for the first time in the Bible. Who were his parents? Who were his grandparents? What's his point? Why, Why Joshua? Why does Joshua just pop up here? Well, I think if we keep in mind the original audience, uh, the Pentateuch is written for the instruction of the children of Israel as they're camped in the plains of Moab and preparing to enter into the promised land. So these children of Israel have grown up with Joshua. They know exactly who Joshua is. They don't need Moses to give some big, complicated introduction about who Joshua is. They know he's the captain. He's the military genius who not only has has been used to protect the children of Israel all through the wilderness wanderings, but now is going to lead them into the promised land and conquer the the hostile people in the promised land. Joshua is a name that's well known. So it doesn't need an introduction. But what is interesting is we learn later, again, in Deuteronomy, that Joshua's name is actually Hoshea. It's not Joshua. It's Hoshea. He's, He's referred to as Hoshea, the son of Nun. Nun, N-U-N, being his father. Hosea means salvation. It's at this battle, it's at this event, that his name becomes Joshua. Jehovah saves. From this point where he's introduced as Joshua, the focus is entirely upon the saving power of Jehovah God. And that's the story here in our text. If you, if you read the text with me, 
All right? Moses is clearly setting out a visual thing for us, right? Uh, we've got mountains, and we've got staffs, and we've got people getting attacked. You're, you're expected to have a scene in your mind. So what is the scene that you should have in your mind? If Peter Jackson is making the movie version of the Exodus. What is the scene here? What is the focus of the scene? It's going to be the battle. It's going to be the raiders coming in on their fast horses and camels and coming out of the mountains and attacking the people and Joshua leading the people with the swords that they picked up off the dead Egyptians that washed up on the seashore of the Red Sea, coming with those weapons and, and bravely defeat. What's the focus of this passage? It's not the battle. Look at it again. It's the staff of God. That is the visual. That is the thing that stands out visually in this passage. In verse 8, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Then verse 11, Whenever Moses raises his staff with his hand with the staff in it, Joshua prevails. But when he lowers his hand, Amalek prevails. And then finally, at the close, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. And the Hebrew word there is very closely related to staff. The idea is that a captain would have a staff that often had a pendant streaming from it, and it was the visual sign for the people in battle, so you knew where your center was, you knew where your flank is, and as long as that staff, that flag is held upright, then you're winning, and once that flag starts to go down, that particular weak point is getting overwhelmed, it's that staff that rallies the people. And that's what Moses is saying, God is. God is the one who is the banner. God is the one around whom the people rally. And God is the one that draws their attention and feeds, fuels their identity. And not only is God showing the children of Israel His mighty protecting hand. But He's also showing the children of Israel where their focus needs to be. Not on the enemies. Not on the bread. Not on the water. Not on the quote-unquote providence. Not on the circumstances. But on the God who is leading them. With that, I think we can step back and get a better understanding of this grand tapestry. 
Because this really isn't a story about a battle at all. It's not a story about the Amalekites at all. It's a story. It's a demonstration of God's protecting hand. Governing His people. Now, you're all good Christian theologians, and so when I say God's protecting hand governing His people, we all nod our heads and hallelujah, amen, God's protecting hand governs our people, governs His people. God is my banner. Love that. I'll crochet it or cross-stitch it or whatever it is you do and hang it on the wall. The Lord, my banner. How many times do you and I find ourselves in exactly the shoes of the children of Israel. Complaining because we don't think that God's going to provide for us. Complaining because we don't like how God provides for us. Fearful that this God who has guarded us and kept us all the days of our lives is no longer going to do it tomorrow. Or even worse yet, brothers and sisters, bitter. Bitter over what God has allowed to happen in your life. Bitter that God would allow that person to so deeply betray and hurt. Bitter that God didn't make sure that your life, that my life, was smooth and perfect and rosy the way that I'm convinced my life should be. Because if God loved me, I wouldn't face these very personal hurts and injustices. Right? I mean, come on, that's not that far off, brothers and sisters. That is not that far off from what you and I automatically default to. find it interesting... God doesn't explain to the children of Israel. I mean, this story, this story clearly is one that God demands be written down, recorded in a book. He is so upset with the Amalekites that he says they will be blotted out forever. Now, it's interesting. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And... To some degree, their grudge, their blood feud with the children of Israel is an extension of that blood feud between Jacob and Esau. And this is just a continuation. Uh, the Amalekites pop up again in the book of Esther. You remember the man's name, Haman. He's referred to in Esther as Haman the Haggagite. But actually, it's Haman the Amalekite. And what is Haman's one goal in life? To wipe out the children of Israel. He wants to see Esther killed. He wants to see all these, these children of Israel. He's the one that manipulates the king's decree that on such and such a day, you can go slaughter all the Jews that, that live anywhere near you. That's Haman's idea. 
This is nothing less than the serpent himself. The serpent seeking to destroy the seed of the promise. But at the same time, these are genuine men and women, boys and girls, that are getting slaughtered by these wild guys out of the wilderness. This is real life. Yes, they're part of a grand tapestry. Yes, they're part of God's great story. And it's a story that ultimately is going to be concluded, it's going to reach its conclusion there in Revelation chapter 19 where the Lamb comes and makes perfect, righteous, holy war against all who would set themselves up against the Lord and against His anointed. But, these people, these men and women and boys and girls, their life is caught up in this grand drama. You are going to follow a banner. You are going to live your life for some purpose. It is, it's not debatable whether your life has a telos, a, a point, a meaning, a, a thing that you're striving for. It's not debatable. If your life has no purpose then, I mean, it seems to me that's kind of like the absolute definition of clinical depression, and you end up curled up in the fetal position in your bed or in a psychiatric institution. Uh, There's got to be some reason (laughs) that you get out of bed in the morning. There's got to be some reason that you engage in your schoolwork. There's got to be a reason, there's got to be a point to why you get up and go. For the children of Israel, the lesson here is that banner that leads is God Himself. I said, Rod Dreher describes this outer rim of the inferno. This culture of running after empty banners. And the book itself is kind of autobiographical. He's, he's, he's describing his own journey and how Dante's divine comedy helps him to go through this very, very personal struggle and, and understanding of himself and better realignment with, with God's creation. And he describes, he, at this point, he's, he's well educated, he's a, he's an author, he, uh, a man of letters. And, Circumstances in life have caused him to need to move back home to rural Louisiana. He finds himself very out of touch with the very same people that he grew up with. Uh, he's just, he's not the same man, uh, and, and not the same worldview. And he's contemplating leaving Louisiana. This place has got to be the reason that I feel so horrible. <laughs> about my life. This, this place is backwards. There's no economic opportunities. My writing career isn't taking off here in rural Louisiana. 
And so as he studies, or as he, as he reflects on this outer rim, the people who never loved, who never had any passion that they drove for in life, these people who were always centered on themselves and just lurching from one thing to another, seeking to find meaning and seeking to find happiness. Rod Dreher said that he realized that he was doing the same thing. And that if he left Louisiana, that he would just be dragging his wife and children behind him as he continued his circuitous journey trying to find something that could only be found right where he was. And that was no longer being an exile. Beloved, I think in each one of us, I think in each one of us, there is some seed of that. There is something in there that, that, that drives our restlessness You know, Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our society around us, I mean, guys, come on, this is Dante's first level of the inferno. This what this is. (laughs) People lurching from one thing to another and finding no value, no meaning, No home, but rather disappointment here and disappointments there. And beloved, as the writer to the Hebrews would say, take heed, take heed lest in any of you there be that unbelieving spirit. Because that banner that God calls us to rally around, is the only place that you will ever find joy, that you will ever find meaning, that you will ever find happiness. It requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires that you and I put to death those things that would stand between us and God. That we actively seek them out. That we find those things That thing deep down inside you, what is it? Is it bitterness? That thing, is it pride? Is it reputation? what, What is that thing? Because that thing will kill you. It will destroy you. Sadly, I know, just statistically speaking, that there are in all likelihood people sitting in the sound of my voice in this room that 30 years from now are never going to make a claim for Jesus Christ. That's just, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen with my friends. I've seen it happen with co-laborers. I've seen it happen with godly, gifted pastors. Got a, got a dear friend that I've known for years that just informed the church a month or two ago that he has committed disqualifying sin. He's run off with another woman. He is not repentant. And he has betrayed his 
vows to God. He's betrayed his vows to his wife, his vows to his children, his vows to his congregation. I hate it. I hate seeing this happen. I hate it when it happens to another minister. I hate it when it happens to someone who has sat under my ministry. I hate it when it happens to somebody who's in my own family, my own flesh and blood. I hate it. But beloved, I can't control it. There's only one person that you can govern, and that's yourself. And so I plead with you, I encourage you, I exhort you, dig down deep and find out what is that thing that would take your eyes off of God's staff, God's banner, God's leading in your life. What is that thing that makes you upset with God? What is that thing that makes you doubt that it's even relevant to your life. Because your choice and my choice is completely binary. There is no third option. You are either following after the banner or you're wandering. You're wandering. You're shifting from one thing to another because nothing will ever satisfy. Nothing ever does. That's the lesson for the children of Israel here. That's what God has for them to remember. Very briefly, one other point with this whole thing with the Amalekites, blotting out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses building an altar. The point of altars is a place of memory. We build these altars in order to memorialize something happened here. And here at this altar is where God gave the promise, the gates of hell will not prevail against my people. Amalek is going to be wiped out. Satan is going to be defeated. Anyone who would raise their hand against God's bride, The very label itself, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand against the throne. They're not fighting, the the, the Amalekites are not fighting the children of Israel. The Amalekites are fighting God himself. Those who would attack the church, those who would attack the child of God, it's not coming at you. It's coming at God. And so in his banner, in his light, you and I have perfect security. Because God will defend his bride. Do you see God as your banner? Do you see God as your staff? Do you see God and his word? as the central person around whom your life is built and in whom you have safety? That's not an easy question. Because I'll tell you right now, it requires a lot of self-denial, 
It requires a lot of sacrifice. It requires a lot of cross-bearing. The one who would follow, let him take up his cross and follow me. An instrument of death and torture. The one who would be mine has got to turn his back on family, on houses, on land, on reputation. But beloved, this banner is worthwhile. This banner is beautiful. And I encourage you to set up your own memorials. To say, thus far God has brought me. What has God done in your life that has protected, that has guided, that has kept you? There are things that any child of God can look at. Don't go wandering around. Shifting aimlessly here or there. It's this singular focus upon God, His care, His guiding hand. It's going to affect the way that I parent my children. It's going to affect the way that I engage with my wife. It's going to affect the kind of entertainment that I am passionate for. It's going to affect the time that I give to various duties in life. It's going to affect every area of your life. Beloved, it's worth it. I promise you it's worth it. I promise you the alternative is hell. It's a hell here on earth. A hell of meaninglessness. A hell of wandering. A hell of bitterness, loneliness, disease, and discomfort, discontent. It's hell. And it's just intensified once you die. The beloved, the heaven, is just intensified as well. That beautiful promise that we have a perfect communion with God can be yours now. Tastes of it. They can be yours even now.